Hey everyone, I'm Ryan Becker. Welcome to the Lead Podcast. I have been meaning to record this intro for months, but every time I get around to it, I'm either sick or I don't have my equipment with me. So my apologies that this has been so delayed. But today's episode actually features me as the guest, and Roger and I recorded this back when I was still pastoring a two-church district in South Carolina. Now, currently, at the time that this episode is releasing, I no longer work as a full-time pastor. I have moved to Southern Adventist University, and I'm working there as an admissions counselor and ministry coordinator, but I also lay pastor a church. The reason it's important that you know that is I wanted to let you know that while the information is still good, I am no longer pastoring, and so while I talk about it in the in the present tense, um, I am no longer in that position, but that doesn't make, mean that the words that I said were any less true to my experience. So I uh, just wanted full disclosure on that uh, so that you could understand where we're at. The Lead Podcast is going to still continue. Season three is recorded and it is just around the corner. So season three will be launching in just a couple weeks. So be on the lookout for that. But for now, enjoy the end of season two with an interview between Roger and myself. Welcome to the Lead Podcast, helping you to get it, grow it, and give it. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Lead Podcast. My special guest today is Ryan Becker. He is a pastor, a millennial pastor in the Conference of Carolina. Welcome, Ryan. Thanks. Good to be on now as a guest this time. Oh, yeah. Ryan is uh, my fearless co-host in the lead podcast. <laughs> fearless. That's one way to put it. <laughs> and uh, Ryan, um, first of all, I want to thank you for having a name I can pronounce. That, that's the first great <laughs> thing about you. Um, and if you don't have any other good things, that, w- that's right, that right there is enough for us to like you. Uh, so Ryan, you... Uh, have been a part of the church since pretty much since birth, correct? Yes. Tell me a little bit about your journey. Uh, why did you decide to become a pastor? You know, we're having 50% of the pastoral force retiring in, over the next 10 years, so we're going to be needing some pastors. And it's increasingly hard to find millennial pastors and millennial white pastors even more difficult. So why did you decide to become a pastor? Well, when I was, so I grew up fully Adventist. My mom worked for the Florida Conference, and, and I grew up Adventist education through and through, from kindergarten all the way through college. And I was really involved when I was a student, starting in eighth grade and through high school in uh, different student offices, chaplain, like I was my eighth grade class chaplain, and I was the first student to speak at, at chapel at my at my elementary slash middle school. Granted, they had just started chapels like two years prior to that, but still, um, in other words, they there was a marked difference in, in my involvement on campus. And I just always felt this pull to um, be involved and to make a difference. I didn't like just leaving things how they were. And what started as kind of also as a way of me just getting attention to myself, I always felt like an outcast in public speaking as far as in eighth grade and like my freshman, sophomore year of high school, that ended up being an outlet for me to sort of make a name for myself and feel like I had a role in my school. So it did kind of start also from a selfish place. But I figured at that time, it was better for me to use that desire for the spotlight toward um, and do something good with it rather than act out the other way. And what what would come of that was I would plug in with mentors um, and, and people who came alongside me and they... Um, would help channel that a little bit more intentionally, and they would then 
take that desire for the spotlight away and, and turn it into more of a direct model of an intent for serving others. And I thought I was going to be a lawyer, actually. I thought I was going to, I loved arguing with people. I loved proving people wrong. I really thought I was going to be a lawyer. And one night, my junior year of high school, I was looking at uh, law schools and prices and, and all the competitiveness that comes in that field. And it just kind of dawned on me, not like a not like a choir from heaven and clouds parting and spotlight comes down, but it was just kind of like a, why are you doing this? You know this is not what you're going to be doing. And from that moment on, I knew I was going to be in ministry. I can't explain it much more than that other than it just I knew from that moment that that was the direction I was going. And since then, I've, I've really tried to learn as much as I could and figure out what my place is, is and, and how to use my talents and, and gifts and passions toward ministry and, and towards the calling that I feel that God has placed on my life. You bring up a good point. I just, I just want to make a point in that good point, and it's the subject of calling. There is a perception in people that the only way God calls is to throw you down from a horse, mm. right? But we see in Scripture different types of calls. Like Jeremiah was called since he was a baby. Uh, he was hesitant to join God in his mission. Paul was called in a different way. Abraham was called in a different way. So God calls different people in different ways. I'm glad he called you. Uh, now, you went to, to school in Southern, did yes. your undergrad in Southern. And walk us through that call from the conference that you had a call from God. But now you needed a call from the conference to, to subsidize the call from God, right? Uh, because the call from God is extremely important, and, but a call from the conference will associate employment to it. So how does that... Did you interview with different conferences? Did you say, I want to uh, work in Carolina, the first, first come, mm. first serve? How did that happen? Well, I so I went the traditional route, which at Southern means that that your junior or senior year they they fly in all these different conference officials and um, and I interviewed with with several different conferences. Um, one conference pointed out during the interview, I watched him write in a missing letter from my resume, so that was fun. Um, knew I was not getting a job from that conference, and it, during that time too, he asked me some very strange questions. I actually went back and asked some my other classmates, if they had asked, been asked similar questions, and they said no. And so I felt actually targeted um, by some of those questions. He asked me, he just point blank at one point, he was just like, so tell me about 1844, and where are you on this scale? And it wasn't so much about my calling or experience, but it was he was really just, seemed like he was pushing buttons. And I won't name what conferences did what. Well, was it the beard? Um, was it the beard I think that it was threw the them beard off? at that yeah. time, yeah, okay. probably. And uh, I interviewed with with several different ones, and, and actually Carolina was the only one to... Um, to offer me a job or to offer me a call, but there were several other conferences that had told me, actually one specifically told me, I'd love to hire you to be a director for something, but I don't have the budget for it. So you're not going to get a call, but it's not because I don't want you. It's because I can't afford you. And that was, that was affirming to some extent. You know, I, it was still a bummer that I'm not getting a call, but it was nice to be affirmed in that. Another conference told me, well, we're going to keep our eye on you for five, six years. Don't be surprised if we, if we come calling at some point. And once again, affirming, but still no call. And Carolina, when they, when they told me, when I interviewed with them, they told me, well, we've got to wait three or four weeks before we can uh, make a decision. Personnel committee's got to meet that kind of thing, and, and we'll, we'll get back to you. And I was like, well, great, now I get to wait. And what if another conference offers me a job before then, and, and how do I figure that out? Well, 20 minutes later, 
the president calls me and says, hey, just one more question. Do you have any issues with the 28? <laughs> and I was like, no, I'm full-fledged Adventist, full-fledged Christian. I, I love this church, and I, and I love it. And he goes, all right, well, then I'd like to extend a call to you. And I accepted it pretty much. I, I told him, I said, give me 48 hours to pray over this and think about it and, and really decide if this is what I want. And at the end of it, I accepted so you get assigned to your first district, and there are very few, if any, pastors that come out of college that get assigned to be the senior pastor of Loma Linda, right? Or, yeah. or uh, Andrews University uh, um, or Collegedale community. Usually when you come out of college, one of three things can happen. One, they can send you straight to seminary. Two, they can assign you to a small church district where you have uh, two or more congregations of less than 100 each, or three, you can be an associate pastor in a larger church mm -hmm. with somebody um, that will be your senior pastor. Which one were you assigned to? So actually, I was assigned straight to seminary, mm -hmm. and then I asked, I had this gap between work and, and school. And so I asked them if they could provide some, something for me in that time because I'd know where to be, and they assigned me as an interim pastor for three months until seminary started. Okay. Um, and in those three months, the churches ended up actually asking just to have me as their senior. Okay. Uh, and then the conference was like, yeah, okay, sure. And so they agreed, and, and, and so they, they offered me then the call to be the pastor of the district. And the district originally was three churches, each about an hour apart from each other, and uh, when, the, when I went from interim to full-time, just straight-up pastoring, no seminary immediately, uh, then that changed to they redistricted one of them, and so I was left with two. Okay, so you had two churches coming out of college, a uh, lot of head knowledge. You had some uh, understanding of how to run a church because you've been at Adventist all your life. You've seen, you've been a part of successful churches. Uh, so you, what kind of district did you get? Tell, tell me about... Uh, without throwing anybody under the bus, you know, mm -hmm. not every district and, and small church. There's nothing wrong with small churches, but no. but was, so when you arrived, what were some of the positive things that you saw, and what some what were some of the challenges when you first got assigned into your district? The reason I'm asking you this is because most pastors who are listening to this, who are young, are going to be in the same situation. So what are the things? What are the lessons? What are the yeah. challenges and, and joys that you get from being assigned to a two, two church district? What are the sizes of the church? What, what did you encounter when you arrived? So one of the first things I encountered actually happened before I arrived, which is that several people tried to warn me about one church, and they tried to like tell me to focus my energies here or there or here or there. And uh, when I got there, the situation actually ended up being the exact opposite of what I had been warned about. And I ended up connecting with with you, you connect with each church differently. Every church is like an individual, and they, they each have their own personality. And um, I did end up connecting with the one that I was warned about. Um, and I ended up connecting with the other one as well. I ended up connecting with both. But um, one of the first things I did when I walked in uh, to, the, to the church was um, I decided for myself that I, I wouldn't fully trust the first person I met um, because I knew that I, was, I had been told I had been coming into a church district that had, that had seen some trouble over the last decade or so. And there were a lot of problems and issues, conference members involved in board meetings to help lead and, and, and keep things calm and cool. Um, and so I was very wary when I first came in of, I don't know who to trust here, and I don't know who the, who, I know who the leaders are, but I don't know who the influencers are. 
And so that was one of the first things I did that ended up being somewhat of a wise decision off the bat um, for me specifically. I don't, I wouldn't say that necessarily to every single person that came in, but um, beyond that, then I, I tried to find out who those key influencers were and, and really for the, for the first bit, because I originally, when I first came in, I was only supposed to be there for three months. So my entire mindset was just, what can I do to make a difference here in three months and make the most of my time? I'm not looking for a summer job. I'm looking to actually make an impact where I go. And, and so I was asking questions and trying to figure out what holes I could possibly or potentially fill uh, until the next pastor came along. And um, what I encountered were incredibly nice people. I encountered some of the friendliest people, friendliest churches I had ever met, um, some of the best potluck desserts I have ever ever had in my life, small town South Carolina, um, you know, family recipes passed down, people with like a blueberry patch in their backyard uh, and making blueberry cobbler every summer, just um, some of the most fantastic people. And what I realized was even if the churches don't really have a mission and a, and a vision right then, that um, because they were so kind and so welcoming and friendly, I realized there was so much potential here, and I wanted to see what God would do and could do with these people. So you said from the beginning, you said, I have something to work with. Yeah, not, a, not an ideal situation, but I have something to work with. And yeah. I think one of the things that, that you demonstrate there, which I wish more pastors would have, is a sense of optimism. Like when we see a church and it's maybe a little bit dysfunctional, um, there's always something positive in every church. And we, we can tend to concentrate on the bad thing about it, the smells about it, the, the grumpy people, but there's always good people in every church. Um, so, so you arrived, um, you have two churches, right? What, what's the membership of each? What's the attendance of each? So uh, membership, around 80 to 100, but attending when I first arrived was uh, 20 max on a Sabbath. On one. Um, uh, for both. For both. Both were uh, pretty much about even. Um, the other church, because it literally is a smaller church, like physically it can seat fewer people, it, it, it wasn't as big, so their membership was uh, 60 to 80, I think, and somewhere in, somewhere in between there, but still max attending of, of about 20. So te tell me one thing you did that worked, and one thing you did that fell flat on its face. Like you thought this is going to be fantastic and really terrible. Like I never, I'm never doing that again. And something you did that you said, we're going to do this, and it, they accepted it, and it worked, and it pushed the mission forward. So give me a couple of stories of things that worked and didn't. So um, one of the things with one of the churches I want, I, did it, I ended up doing one for each church, which was um, we did a kind of a family picnic or fun day for the churches. One church was in a neighborhood, or is literally in a neighborhood, like the edge of our parking lot is the backyard of a, of a small house. And then um, the other church is kind of more isolated, away from a neighborhood, away from it. So um, one, and we, we planned these family picnic or fun days in the summer. That was the mistake. Uh, we rented inflatables, we did a cookout style, but the problem was that it was so hot outside that we ended up having uh, almost no one come to one. And we poured all this money into it, and the church got behind it. And it was the first big event that we had done since I, started, since I had become the pastor and uh, fell flat on its face. The other, because it was in a neighborhood, all of our marketing was pretty much taken care of for us just by nature of them driving by or walking by and seeing inflatables in the front yard and, and, and smelling food. And, and so um, was actually a hit. We had like 80 people come through in this small town neighborhood um, in absolutely incredible. And so 
one of the, the biggest thing that I learned was don't do outside things that are not that, that with no way to cool off uh, in the summer. And I know that that seems kind of obvious, but I just didn't think about it at the time. Um, but and as far as um, one thing that really didn't work out was I really didn't realize kind of how how flexible some of our conference schedules can be and when they need, like, for example, when they need new church officers in by, what day they need those in by. And so we were running behind on nominating committee. I had never run it. I was nervous about it. And then I realized, wait, if we're running behind, we're going to be late on the deadline. What if I just vote or what if we do take a vote as a whole church in business session to just continue the current board for one more year? I had, had, I had heard absolutely no issues from the church members regarding the board. All the board members seemed like they were game to stay on. And, and so the Sabbath that we had advertised for everyone to bring in names for nominating committee, because the church is small enough that the church is the organizing committee, um, I met with the elders up front right before the service started, asked them what they thought about it, the idea. They were like, yeah, let's do it. And I basically bait and switched the nominating committee. And it went from putting in names to then just voting in to keep the current board. And very suddenly on that morning, I found out that there were issues and uh, there were board members that didn't even want to stay. Um, and what ended up happening was they, they did end up voting to keep the board. But when I had to preach through a very, very angry service, <laughs> people were very angry with me. And immediately afterwards, I mean, if you could have handed them pitchforks and torches, they would have happily carried them against me. And I realized what was going on, and I realized that some members didn't even understand what was happening. And so, um, because literally some of them are hard of hearing, I'm, to be clear, I'm the only millennial in my district. I'm the only young adult, period. And so I've got a lot of older members hard of hearing, slow to understand things. They didn't understand what they had just voted on. And so I realized, okay, we're gonna go way back to the drawing board. And I apologized, and I said, I'm sorry, I, I asked for forgiveness, and I let them know that I had messed up, and I had meant nothing by it. But it basically looked like a power play. And luckily, they forgave me right on the spot once they realized the mistake and yeah. we moved on. A lot of pastors, uh, especially young pastors, make the mistake that when they make a mistake, instead of admitting the mistake, they double down on the mistake mm. and, and try to explain the mistake away or say, well, that's not really what I meant or, or just dig in. And I found it much better to just, just take the heat Because it'll, people will be mad at you for a week or two. But if you dig down, that can draw out yeah. for months. And, and the level of trust is never going to be there because you were, not, you were not big of a person to admit. Yeah. Uh, I remember changing the carpet of a church. And I did not consult the board. They showed up on Sabbath and the carpet was changed. And mm. I, um, I got, <laughs> I wasn't there that weekend. Oh no! Oh no! <laughs> and they called me and said, uh, "Who in the world authorized this?" And I said, "It was me. Don't you like it? It was two colors, like it was a color down the center and a color underneath the pews." And they're like, "This is terrible. We hate it." And I went back to the board and I apologized. I said, "I should have never done this. I should have consulted you. I'm sorry." Trust gained, right? Yep. This is something that you did. Um, so how did you gain the trust? In order to lead people, they have to trust you. Yeah. How do you gain the trust of older members who have gone through church splits and church dysfunction over the last 10 years? How do you get the trust of those people? 
So one of the scariest things about entering this district was through college, I'd done a ton of youth and young adult ministry. And I went from preaching to kids almost every week to very, with almost no transition, like one week preaching to young adults, the next preaching to people three times my age. And it was incredibly scary. And I was like, how do I even, what do I even tell these people? How, what can I even teach these people? Because they have more life experience and they've been Adventists for longer than I've been alive. And so the first thing I did was I, I went the humility route. And I basically said, look, I'm not here because I think I can teach you anything or um, teach you something you don't already know or anything like that. I'm here to simply journey with you. I'm not here to lead you from point A to point B. I'm not your Moses, um, but I want to be someone who journeys with you and we discover together what God has in store for this church, which means I want you on board with everything. Um, so that was the first thing I did. And coming in with a, with a humble attitude instead of the, I need to prove myself and, and, and um, really show that I know my stuff in, in leadership decisions, I had no idea what I was doing. I went to school for four years to read the Bible, and then I get handed a budget. <laughs> like that's, that's a much different area. And yeah. so that was really significant. The other thing I did was I made sure that my preaching was as good as I could be. Um, I made sure to really know my stuff when it came to what I was preaching on. And that, because that's, that's the one time you have 30 uninterrupted minutes of their attention. And if you waste that, it shows that you're willing to waste other time as well. And so I actually had members ap- approach me the very first Sabbath and say, hey, I, I thought we were going to have to babysit a college kid for the summer. I did not realize we were getting a pastor. And so I'm sorry for, for judging you and, and, and condemning you off the bat. And I, I see now that I, you know, I want to work with you and do what I can to be a part of this. And that was incredible to me. So how do you deal with uh, the inevitable pushback that comes with being a new pastor? No matter what kind of church you're in, no matter how good you are as a pastor, uh, I've had conversations with David Ashrig, I've had conversations with Dwight Nelson, I've had conversations with C.D. Brooks, I've had conversations with, I mean, you name it. Yeah. Every single one of them pastored the church where they had people that did not like them. So how do you deal with conflict in a small church? Because it's different when when Dwight Nelson was talking to me about a new church plant that came out of his church uh, that he wasn't really behind. I, he, he told me the story. We, I wrote a blog about it. Um, probably a couple hundred people left, but he has, still has 1,500 people attending, mm-hmm. right? So if... 200 people leave. No one notices. A, the, yeah, you, you see a couple of empty spots in there, but you still have 1,200, yeah. 300. But if you have 20, right, and a couple of families get mad at you and say, we're out, then that's like half your church. Yeah. So how do you deal with criticism? How do you deal with pushback? How do you deal with conflict? How do you manage that when it's directed to you and it's when, when it's directed uh, to, to each other mm. in the church? The biggest thing, and, and I've been really blessed with this, the biggest thing that has helped me is that my elders and I have always been on the same page. Um, and, and I've worked very hard to become friends with them and make sure that, that we, we have open lines of communication. Uh, that was really helpful to me. The, the other half of that answer is, is also making sure to identify quickly who the key influencers are. And one of my churches, the founder of the church, it started in his home, is still very much attending and active. Having him on quote-unquote my side 
was incredibly helpful because when I present something or do something new, these key leaders in the church would also back me up. And so having, and the, and the key leaders are people that those members in opposition to me already trust. So they served as the bridge to then say, um, okay, let's try this at least. Um, that so, was, that so, was huge. Yeah. So you didn't come in and blowing everything up. No. That you didn't come in with guns blazing. No. Like, this, this is terrible. I'm going to blow everything up. Well, you came in with a different attitude. Correct? I actually let everything stay exactly as it was almost for the first year. Um, until we had the chance to reelect new members or, or elect new members or reelect current board members. And I let everything restart to where then I could create a leadership culture and a church culture that then I could also hold people accountable to. I can't hold people accountable to nothing when I haven't done anything, right? If I haven't set up the system, then there's nothing for me to hold them accountable to. So I waited until we had a good chance to do that. And they knew me. I told my story and I let them know who I was. And that was... Um, that was also huge. Is just big, huge transparency, and and to be honest, to the 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 entire idea of apologizing and asking forgiveness, I almost looked for opportunities to say I'm sorry and to let them know that I'm working and trying to grow and trying to be better as well. That was huge um, as well in gaining trust. Okay, so so fast forward, you've been there a couple of years now. Yes, so two two years, years exactly. Okay, so what? What are you happy about? What, as you look back, how has the church grown? Uh, it doesn't, not necessarily numerically, but in spiritual, in mm-hmm. spirituality, how have they grown in unity? What, what positive signs are you seeing? So we, uh, I've seen actually a much greater involvement in what we do as a church. Uh, one of the easiest ways I did that was open up the platform schedule that was dominated prior by just the elders and the pastor opened that up to everybody. And that was a really good door opener into letting everyone get involved. Um, I've been thrilled at, we've, we've done a lot of community impact initiatives. So less on the direct evangelism and more on like, hey, let's just serve our community in whatever way we can. And with older people, that's really hard to do as a group because what I found was church members can't afford to come to the church multiple times a week because they're on a very strict and limited income. Um, or people are working, and, and you know older professionals are working, and they, they, they just don't have the time or the schedule. They live far. So um, I basically encourage people to just get involved however they could, and I found organizations that we could partner with. And so I have church members individually volunteering at different locations and different places. Uh, we've had the mayor of one of the towns come in and speak at our church and get to know our members. We've had, and, and talk about how the church can be involved in the community. We've had the the um, presidents and, and, and the people who run the nonprofit organizations we've been involved with, they've come into our church and attended our services as well. And we've hosted community lunches, things like that. Really tried to just put a footprint in the community that, hey, we exist, we're here to serve, and, and, and um, no pressure. Not trying to get people into pews, but just letting them know that we care about them and that we're there. Um, that's been amazing. Um, we've also voted on a mission statement, um, crafted th- uh, three-year strategic plans, for the entirety of the time I'd be there. Um, and we've worked through a lot of stuff as far as like structural changes and upgrades, cleaning things up, literally cleaning things up. And it's been... Like cleaning clean things up like in the building? Yeah, talk? like in the building, like cleaning out rooms and okay. finding like like cleaning out. We had we found cassette revelation seminars from like the yeah, late 80s. Like in gathering materials yeah. and stuff. Yeah, it's not coming back in gathering. So no. yeah, <laughs> you can throw stuff out now. So we chucked those and, and really just... And, and one of the things I did was I made sure to preach... 
Um, I, I don't consider myself like a theologian academically. I don't think of myself along the study research line. I think of myself more on the relational theological side of things. So my preaching was also directed that way. And they had been used to the other style of academic lectures. And so just in general contrast, that actually ended up working in my favor because once again, that was another connection point for them. And that was that helped significantly in, in changing the atmosphere of the church. Well, I mean, Jesus said, feed my sheep, not feed my giraffes. So it, I think that you did, a, you did a good thing there. Now, as we wind up our interview here, um, you are a young adult pastor in a church that has no young adults, right? You are, mm-hmm. you, you are single. So how hard has it been uh, to, to be in that position? What do you do to make sure you have healthy relationships with your peers? Mm-hmm. Do you just like take off and, and go to a, to a coffee shop and drink <laughs> some decaf? Because we don't drink coffee because we're, ha- we're no, having it. Never. And what, what do you do in that? How hard has that been? Loneliness, not loneliness. What, what, uh, what, what, what can you say about that? So by far, the hardest thing for me to deal with was the isolation. I grew up in Orlando, then go to Chattanooga, and then ended up in Rock Hill, South Carolina, where there's no Adventists. And uh, the isolation was the hardest thing in the world for me to learn how to deal with. And I'm an introvert. So if an introvert is, you know, someone who really likes being alone and recharges that way, gets sick of being alone, <laughs> there's a problem. And the isolation was one of the hardest things for me to deal with, both in my church and, and, and out of it. And one of the things I had to do was just be intentional to take whatever trips I could uh, whenever they come up to uh, spend time with people I care about. I also had to set solid boundaries around my life. You know, I don't have a family, so I don't have, you know, you could easily say that I don't need the personal time, but I do uh, away from the churches. So I set a time, you know, seven o'clock after that time, I don't answer my phone from church members unless it's an emergency and they leave a voicemail or something. Um, You know, I'm very intentional for boundaries to take care of myself um, but the isolation was absolutely the hardest thing. The other hardest thing for me was I was looked on with suspicion by other pastors. Is this kid going to play ball? Is this kid going to, to do what we expect him to do and, and be the kind of pastor that we expect him to be? And I have zero interest in playing ball, quote-unquote. I have zero interest in meeting some expectation that someone else has met. I want to follow the path that God has called me to and the direction that God has called me in and so what's that, what that's meant is um, I've had a hard time connecting and finding mentorship with pastors older than me because they don't even say a word to me. At pastors' meetings or other things, I, there are pastors that just haven't said a word to me, uh, walk right by me. And part of that, too, is me. I haven't said oh, – it goes both ways to some extent. Um, I've been lucky to find other pastors kind of closer to my age that I've been able to connect with in my conference, but I know that's not the case everywhere. But, yeah, there's, there's a lot of, it seems like, fear – or distrust from older generations to, to what I'm doing, and, and maybe it's how I dress, maybe it's how I, I don't know, but, but learning how to find comfort and, and community and belonging just in my profession uh, has been really difficult, and finding the people that I could connect with and really investing in those relationships has been, um, has been the thing that's kind of carried me through socially. Okay, so if somebody wants to connect with you on social media uh, platforms, what uh, would be a way of doing that? Uh, Facebook is great. Search my name. Uh, Twitter, at Ryan180Becker. 
and you can find me on there. I'm happy to talk. Um, and then I also host a different podcast on my own. You can check that out at theabsurdity.org. And so those are kind of the things that I do, and 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 one of the ways I, um, one of the ways I use my spare time. But those would be the best ways to connect with me, and I'm happy to talk with anyone about anything at all. I, I'm always open to it. All right. Well, I guess it's been uh, Ryan Becker. Thank you, Ryan, for uh, your time, and we'll see you next time at The Lead Podcast. Hey, guys. Thanks so much for listening to The Lead Podcast. My name is Ryan Becker. I'm one of the co-hosts and producer of this podcast, and we really appreciate your support. If you want to subscribe, then you can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, any of your favorite podcatching apps. And if you do subscribe on iTunes, then we just ask that you please leave a review. That really helps us out to know what we can do better and the things that you are already enjoying, the things that we can continue doing. Make sure you do subscribe and leave a review because we're always doing giveaways. And that really uh, that's the way that we do it is we do it for those who have left a review. If you have any comments, questions, or feedback for the show, you can email us, leadsupodcast at gmail.com, or you can find us on Twitter, Roger Hernandez, at leadsu, and myself, at Ryan180Becker. Thank you guys so much for listening and supporting. Without you, this is not possible. We'll see you next time.